Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. Recently, I was contacted by a reporter from the New York Times who wanted to figure out why certain communities keep electing people for Congress who have said that the 2020 election was rigged or that it was stolen. But at the heart of their question was really, why does your neck of the woods continue to vote for Republicans? The question I was given was really a question surrounding the rural-urban divide, and no matter what paper you open these days, you'll find some reporter that travels to a rural town and an urban area to draw anecdotal evidence between the two. Things like, well, there are more Walmarts in rural America, and there are more Tesla dealerships and Starbucks in urban America. So over the next couple weeks on this show, our attention is going to turn to rural America, Specifically, our little corner of Southwest Virginia and what we know about the politics of rural America in general. So today, I'm joined by two guests who spend their time researching the rural-urban divide. Dr. Cal Muniz is an assistant professor of political science at Utah Valley University. Prior to becoming a professor at UVU, Dr. Muniz was born and raised in rural southwestern Montana, was the first in his family to attend college, graduating first from the University of Montana and then earning his doctorate at the University of Virginia, and then worked as a pollster tasked with helping Democrats win in rural red states. Dr. Nicholas Jacobs is an assistant professor of government at Colby College in Waterville, Maine. He is an expert in political geography, federalism, and American political development. A native Virginian, he now calls rural Maine home where he and his family run Jacobs Gardens, a small nursery and flower farm. He earned his doctorate at the University of Virginia after receiving his bachelor's degree from the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg. Earlier this year, he published his book, What Happened to the Vital Center, Presidentialism, Populist Revolt, and the Fracturing of America. And his next book, The Rural Voter, is due out next year with Columbia University Press. So first... Thanks to both of you for being on the show. Thanks, Heather. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us, for covering this issue. Well, you know, I'm very excited to have you both on today because this is an issue that is near and dear to my heart. I live in Southwest Virginia. I also talk to students, colleagues, and friends all of the time about how we can perhaps change the dynamics that we see playing out in rural America versus urban America. And so my first question, though, is one that I think is kind of easy, because some people who may be driving around listening to this might be thinking, well, what do they mean by rule, right? How how do we define the terms rural and urban? Well, that is an incredibly complex question. (laughs) You'd think it would be easy. Uh, We hope most days that it is easy, but there's a lot of debate and discussion over what it means to be rural and what it means to live in a rural area. The federal government has no fewer than a dozen measures for thinking about what a rural area is or a very rural area is. And in some ways, it's just as complicated as figuring out uh, different levels of of how urban places are. I I think the main place where Cal and I start is that ruralness exists in people's minds. It is not just a physical location, although it is a physical space, right? Both Cal and I live in rural communities defined by all those measures. 
but we care about whether somebody identifies as a rural resident or a rural person. And that often gets lost in translation when talking about the rural-urban divide, is there's lots of people that live in cities but don't think of themselves as urban people. There's lots of people that live in rural America that don't maybe identify as rural America. Maybe most of my colleagues that found themselves stranded in rural Maine, for instance. So ruralness is something someone has to believe in first and foremost, and then we can start to pick out what makes them unique. Now, I know in your research, you talk about a sense of place or a sense of belonging, kind of like there's no place like home. How is it, because we're going to get into talking about politics here, how, how is it that a sense of place or a sense of belonging can become politicized? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so uh, in our research, right, this this idea of a sense of place is really central and um, uh, I think this is something that a lot of, uh, it puzzles a lot of academics, um, both I think generally, but particularly in political science uh, that, we, that we focus on this. And I think part of that is that academics are particularly transient uh, folks and maybe don't have a strong sense of place often themselves, but most Americans do. Um, because I think contrary to uh, you know, our stereotypes about America and Americans, um, rates of, uh, uh, of moving about the country, right, have been declining precipitously since the 40s. Um, and most people grow, uh, live within 30 miles of where they grew up. Um, and uh, so people are pretty well rooted in place by and large. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. This isn't necessarily, uh, place identity isn't necessarily um, uh, political, but it can become politicized um, um, uh, within elections if candidates um, move to make it uh, political. So uh, there are different sort of levels of geography that one might identify with, right? That might be sort of central to one's place identity. Um, that could include uh, the state level. Um, so, you know, your sense of Virginia identity, if you identify strongly with your state and it's sort of core to how you understand yourself and see yourself in the world. Um, and state identity isn't necessarily always politicized, um, but occasionally it is. We're seeing this in Pennsylvania right now, right, where uh, U.S. Senate candidate um, uh, Fetterman is uh, the Democrat is uh, uh, really attacking um, his Republican opponent, Mehmet Oz, on the basis of place, right? Attacking him on the basis of place identity um, is alleging that um, Mehmet Oz is, a, is an outsider, whereas, you know, David, uh, uh, Mr. Fetterman is a uh, um, sort of native born son of Pennsylvania, right? Uh, Pennsylvania through and through. Um, and so he's looking to sort of tap into that place identity that sort of cuts across partisanship in order to pull in um, independents, uh, swing voters that um, are routinely um, uh, pivotal within a hyper-competitive state like Pennsylvania. When it comes to other levels of geography like urban and rural, the story is a little bit different. Um, these um, identities have become uh, politicized. Uh, Nicholas and I um, have, have come to that conclusion um, uh, after having studied this for many years, 
Um, and we now sort of see um, the politicization of urban and particularly rural identity as being part and parcel of the nationalization of politics. And um, so the Republican efforts over the years have been sort of core uh, central to that process. Yeah, and I know after 2016, there was a lot of talk about this divide and how it was growing. What has happened to this so-called divide since 2016? And and actually, I guess I should back up from there. When we talk about the divide, like how individuals vote in rural versus urban, can you can you talk a little bit about that? What what does that look like? Do rural citizens vote as one way and urban citizens vote in another? And then has that has it changed over time? So at a basic level, when we talk about the urban and rural divide, we mean that urban areas are voting overwhelmingly democratic and doing so in, in lopsided ways, 60-40, 65-35. And rural America, or places on the map comprised of different electorates of rural people, whether or not they identify as rural, are voting overwhelmingly Republican, 70-30, 75-25. And so not only is that divide, you know, one goes one way and the other goes the other way, but the difference between the two parties is increasing over time. It has increase depending on how you sort of define urban and rural and want to measure that. It has been on the increase since the 1980s. A lot of that change stems from the fact that the South is now competitive in a partisan sense, whereas prior to the 1980s, it wasn't competitive. It was a democratic monopoly um, at the president, at the federal level, especially. And because a large proportion of rural voters live in the South, um, it had this effect of, of making the South or making rural areas more Republican leaning. After, you know, my measures would suggest, particularly during the election of Barack Obama, you see stark divisions, um, which continue to increase in 2012, which increase again in 2016 when people care to take notice, and then have increased once again in the midterm elections in 2020. Um, the remarkable thing in some regard is that even though Donald Trump lost re-election in 2020, his support in rural areas ex far exceeded um, in almost every case, his support in 2016. And it was a major reason why he received, uh, fact check me on this one, 11 million more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. Yeah, as I was saying at the beginning of the show, too, there are a lot of reporters who have contacted me and others trying to get a sense of why rural residents continue to elect Republicans. And both of your research kind of centers around this question of what is it about place? What is it about rural versus urban? What's happening here? And as I was reading some of your work, I came across the term rural resentment. And I wondered if one of you might want to define that for the audience. So what is rural resentment? And when we think about like, how, how can we measure that? When we talk about the rural and urban divide, we could talk about that divide in terms of the different types of people that live in rural and urban America. The fact that urban areas have more college educated people, the fact that urban areas are younger and rural areas are older, 
the fact that as a proportion of their population, more people in rural America are likely to identify as evangelical Christians than in urban area. And so a big debate in the rural politics literature and a, and a big debate that I think matters for figuring out what the, what the future of the urban and rural divide looks like is how much of this divide is a, is a result of composition effects. Um, the fact that just different types of people live in these different types of areas. And uh, some of that divide is driven by composition effects and is driven by sort of national changes in partisanship writ large that have seen blue collar workers leave the Democratic Party in droves as well as evangelicals and, and older people. What we mean by uh, rural resentment and what we mean by a sense of place as being politically important is, to, is not to say that composition doesn't matter, but it is to say that it's not the only thing that matters. That composition alone cannot explain why you see the divides to the extent that you see them and cannot explain for instance, I'll use my my home, my adopted hometown of Vassarboro, Maine, why you have a town that in 2008 votes for Barack Obama uh, by double digits. And then not a reason, not a function of me moving there or people leaving, Vassarboro has sort of stayed the same for the last 50 years. It's not a change in composition. Why that my why my town now votes overwhelmingly for Republican candidates, especially Donald Trump. Um, so that's I think part of the problem. That's where resentment fits into this larger picture. So when we think about resentment, if you boil it down to just its base level, what do we mean by that? Is it that rural residents? I mean, essentially, is it that rural residents hold some sort of feelings towards the urban areas? that then influences their politics. Yeah, so what, when we're talking about rural resentment, um, in essence, what we're talking about is that rural Americans feel a sense of being aggrieved on the basis of geography per se. That, and this, uh, this relates to something that, that Nicholas and I find repeatedly in our research is that rural Americans care much more so about place and geography than urbanites do. Um, urbanites have, uh, well, both urbanites and ruralites have a litany of different concerns. It's just that in terms of prioritization, what's really sort of important and at the forefront of people's minds in rural America, that happens to be geography. They understand politics and their place in the world in, in, the, in terms of geography, whereas folks in urban areas might prioritize other dimensions of themselves, such as uh, their race or their class, um, other things like that. Um, uh, and when we say that rural Americans are aggrieved on the basis of geography per se, we mean that rural Americans understand themselves as being left behind, forgotten, and looked down on. 
And um, so rural resentment as uh, Nicholas and I understand it um, um, uh, is sort of comprised of a few different considerations, right? So rural Americans, um, many of them see themselves as not getting um, their fair share of government resources, right? Not getting um, back from government what they're paying in. And when you talk to rural Americans, um, uh, this is, you know, particularly they'll focus on access to services. And so they feel that they're, they're just, they're not getting their fair share. Um, they feel that they um, are often ignored by politicians and that their concerns are uh, being um, uh, uh, sort of ignored by, by government more broadly. And, um, and then there's a cultural aspect of this too, where rural Americans feel that they are uh, looked down on, their lifestyles are looked down on, portrayals of rural Americans, um, say by Hollywood and other media elites um, tend to be uh, negative. Um, and um, they just feel, again, like they've been left behind, ignored and uh, disrespected to the extent that they are portrayed um, in our national media. And so they harbor resentment toward the government and media elites that they see as being sort of responsible um, for that. And in our surveys, we have developed questions that try to tap into each one of those three facets. That's awesome. So I'm going to pause our conversation for just a moment, as I realize some people may be driving around and just tuning in and thinking, who are these wonderful people that Heather has on the show today? So hi, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining Red, White, and Confused. You are listening into a fabulous conversation about the rural-urban divide with me and Dr. Cal Muniz, as well as Dr. Nicholas Jacobs. Um, Cal is an assistant professor of political science at Utah Valley University, and Nicholas is an assistant professor of government at Colby College. So I want to actually unpack your, your survey a little bit and your findings. So we're talking about rural resentment. And the idea is, and I'll tell you as someone who lives here in Southwest Virginia, that you're you're on to something. Okay. Um, so how is it that these feelings are getting tied in with partisanship? Because it 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 does seem to be that we've, you know, rural citizens feel left behind. We even see that locally when there's flooding and then very low. You know, if, if you look at the, the checks that people are receiving for their damaged homes and properties and things are so low and then we're, we're being left behind, we're being made fun of, all of those things. How does that then get turned into we're not going to vote for Democrats? That is a good question that uh, my response may actually differ from cows, <laughs> uh, but, but, but we were still talking about it. Uh, we're still trying to figure that little bit out. Uh, the first thing I'd, I'd want to say, though, is that, right, so Cal and I are, uh, have been writing on this for several years, but it is a big effort, maybe not as big as we would like in, in political science, and, and we owe a debt of gratitude to scholars that were picking up on these ideas um, when, when Cal and I first met and, and started, started to want to work on these ideas. Um, 
principally the work of Kathy Kramer, who's out at the University of uh, Wisconsin-Madison, who uh, in talking to people, actually, she, she confesses, you know, she went out into to the countryside and started talking to her fellow Wisconsinites and, and heard these conversations that um, as rural residents, the three of us, we, we hear all the time. And she sort of started putting it together and, and gave it that name resentment. You know, Cal and I certainly have discovered that it extends well beyond Wisconsin and the methodologies that we've been discussing and, and putting into practice here have uh, really tried to think about how rural resentment uh, competes with other drivers and, and doing our research in the South, it's particularly noteworthy to think about how these uh, how it intersects with race, for instance. As to the bigger question of partisanship, I think a lot of this has to do with the it's sort of self-reinforcing, right? As Republicans do better in these areas and as they've been doing better in these areas, again, some of which might be the result simply of composition, um, they're, they're, they've become the only ones talking about these issues to the extent where in a lot of rural communities, Democrats don't even show up to run on the ballot. And so if you think about just the simple signal that something like that sends, well, if Democrats aren't even showing up and talking about these issues, do they really understand and do they really care about the issues like me uh, that are affecting me? And, and again, not just affecting me, affecting my community. And as Cal had mentioned in response to one of your earlier questions, I think a lot of this also has to do with the nationalization of politics, which we can define in a few ways, but one clear indicator of nationalization is the fact that for many individuals, the idea of what a Democrat is and what a Republican is, is tied to the image that the two parties presidential candidates create every four years. A Democrat is Joe Biden. A Republican is whoever the standard bearer, the fact that we call it a standard bearer, right, is to suggest that there is some sort of nationalization, which historically is, is new. And to learn more, you may find more information in my recently published book, What Happened to the Vital Center, Presidential Populism, and so on, uh, where I talk about that. And, and so I think two of those things create this dynamic that make it especially hard to disassociate republicanism from attachment. Yeah, yeah. And just to, I, I think that that's, uh, uh, Professor Jacobs, I think, covers um, a lot of the really important ground there. And I would just sort of tack on to say that um, uh, regarding nationalization, right, you have these national party brands, these national party stereotypes. And I think, right, we have these associations, voters have these associations in their head about what it means to be a Democrat and what it means to be a Republican, right, these stereotypes, if you will. And um, I think that um, for most folks, I think particularly in rural areas, but I think this probably extends beyond rural areas as well. But in rural areas, I think the, you know, one of the dominant stereotypes of Democrats is that they are the party of government. They're the party of, uh, uh, of media elites. I think there's a clear association in people's heads between, um, you know, the mainstream media or 
Hollywood, right? These these actors, right? That uh, you know, sort of condescend toward rural areas um, um, all the time, right? There's a there's a clear association in people's minds between those sorts of institutions and the Democratic Party. And again, if we return to sort of what is at the essence of rural resentment, um, right? What's central to rural resentment is this idea that they have are have been left behind by government broadly. Um, right, considered and um, have been sort of looked down on, condescended to, toward um, by um, our national media, uh, also broadly considered. And so there's that strong association between those institutions and the Democratic Party. I think that that um, helps explain why so many uh, rural voters would never, you know, particularly the, these resentful voters would, um, you know, never dream of voting for a Democrat. So Cal, I know that you've done some work on thinking about how Democrats can come back in rural America, um, ways that they can campaign, things that they can do. What advice would you give the Democratic Party as of right now in terms of rural America? Like how do they turn this around and become more competitive in these rural areas? Yeah, this is a, a a good question. It's a really difficult question. Um, I've spent some time thinking about the ways in which that might be possible. Um, uh, I'll confess that I'm I'm not sure <laughs> to what extent it really is. But if I was going to try it, or if I was going to provide recommendations, my recommendations would be to take this issue of nationalization really seriously um, that we've been talking about. I think that uh, rural uh, Democrats need to do a couple of things. One is to play defense a little bit. Um, and when I when I say what I mean by defense is you rural Democratic candidates and those who fund them need to be willing to break explicitly with the national party on issues that matter most to rural America. So what comes to mind, I think, immediately to me and probably for most of your listeners uh, is guns. You can't you can't be out there talking about, you know, uh, wanting to increase gun control measures too much. You know, maybe background checks, but anything beyond that, um, I think you, you got to just stay away from um, in this in this issue. The next issue I'm going to mention sort of varies from place to place and. You know, in, in parts of the South, I think it's it's a bigger issue than maybe out here in the West. But, you know, abortion being another, um, um, you know, if it makes sense in your constituency to be very pro-life, then you should be a pro-life Democrat. Um, you got to meet the voters where they're at. Um, I think that's something that uh, most of us understand. But the party activists and the consultants back in D.C., um, I don't think always understand that. So that's the defense side of things. And I, you know, I say it's defense because I don't think you can win on that alone. Um, you're not going to outgun the Republicans on guns, for instance. They own that issue, right? Um, they just absolutely own that issue. It's part of the national brand of the Republican Party. So you're not going to beat them on that alone. I think that um, Democrats, though, should try to localize their elections as much as possible. Um, there are, in fact, from, from place to place, community to community throughout the country, lots of issues um, that matter to people on the ground that are uh, uh, sort of central to their daily life, things that they run into on a daily basis 
that are not part of that national political conversation, right? These are hyper-local issues. They don't sort of graft neatly onto, right, national partisan discourse and national party stereotypes. And those are the sorts of issues that Democratic candidates running in these more difficult areas for them need to be trying to elevate, make the campaigns about local issues, do not wade into those national waters um, because the national waters are not favorable to you in rural areas. You don't want to engage in that those conversations. So try to localize your race as much as possible. Um, that's what I would advise for candidates. I think broadly, more bigger picture than that, um, there needs to be some sort of effort to form a faction um, and institutionalize a faction within the Democratic Party um, that would allow... Uh, there to be more of a focus on recruiting and funding candidates to run in uh, rural places and to give them an infrastructure uh, in, on which to do so and, and to where they can develop their own brand, right? Factional brand separate from say the DNC. Um, and I, I'm hopeful um, that efforts are uh, uh, I've heard some rumblings that efforts are underway to do precisely that. So hopefully. Yeah, I was reading one of your articles about this and I was thinking about how you craft a strategy to run and yet also keep your Democratic voters continuing to select you on the ballot, even if you run as a pro-gun, pro-life candidate. Because um, I know at least locally here, I've heard people in the local Democratic Party say, oh, no, like if somebody ran as pro-gun, then I probably wouldn't necessarily support them. But at the same time, you would be able to draw voters from the other side. Um, so I want to get back to one more thing. This is going to be my last question. Actually, it's something that uh, Nicholas said earlier about showing up. So I, I've also felt this over time is that um, at least now that I'm back in Southwest Virginia, Democrats showing up and doing these things. And um, I wanted to know if, if either of you had any reflections from the 2021 gubernatorial election in Virginia. You both have Virginia roots. Would you do you think that that was an issue there that that McAuliffe just wasn't showing up? Nicholas, what what do you think? Did you hear much about kind of his? Whether he was visiting, I, I, you know, it was the first Virginia race in my whole life. I probably didn't follow all that closely, but I was around for Terry's first run as governor when he when he successfully took the governor's mansion. And right, it's easy; it was so easy to paint Terry McAuliffe as a national Democrat. It not is a Virginia, not as a Virginia Democrat, but as a buddy of the Clintons because he is, <laughs> as somebody that cares deeply about democratic issues that matter for Democrats living in the nation and not necessarily the Democrats that could win in, in uh, Virginia. And so it was the best candidate to run against, given these rural and urban divisions and given the strength, uh, given the, the uh, right about a quarter of Virginia is rural, right? So if you were a Republican, you'd want to run against somebody like Terry McAuliffe. <laughs> and that is the reason why Youngkin won. I mean, to put a, a finer point on, on some of these ideas about showing up, uh, 
I, can, I could only share with you some of the language we got in response to a recent editorial we, we put in the Washington Post from Urban America and the, their thoughts they decided to share with us about people living in rural America because the uh, I, I couldn't say some of those things on radio. And I, I will... I will I will say, because I think it's important to say that there are dangerous stereotypes held by urban America towards rural America. There is a faction of the Democratic Party that would view it, view it as unpure to show up in rural America because the only people that live in rural America are bigots and racist and misogynist and people that don't want women to have the right to choose. And part of showing up is just realizing that you're wrong. That if you look at not just our surveys, but if you look at other national surveys, well, you know, rural America actually doesn't stand all that far out on the abortion issue. In some ways, their views are more pro-Democrat than what you would find in the suburbs. Uh, if you want to find traditional attitudes to whether or not women should work out at work outside the home, rural America is overwhelmingly favorable towards that idea where you still sort of have these other ideas floating around even in urban America. So part of it is to understand that um, outside of the urban bubble, one, uh, ideas that you don't like exist there too, right? There are more, there were more Trump voters in Orange County and New York City than in all of Maine combined, right? There are Trump voters in urban America. And what we're talking about with rural America are the local issues that matter for rural voters. And so showing up, the first part is understanding that part of the story. That's a great, great comment. And thank you for saying that. So at the end of the day, it sounds like Democrats, you got to show up. And you got to let go of some of these issues that are national issues and be more local when you run in rural America, like here in Southwest Virginia. So thanks to both of you for being on the show. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you missed any piece of today's show, again, it's Red, White, and Confused. It comes on Thursdays at 6, Sundays at 1. You can also listen to it anywhere on podcasts, say Spotify, Amazon, uh, feel free to follow the Facebook page and I will be putting up the links to all of the podcasts. So you can listen to them anytime. And if you like the show, share it with your friends. Have a great week.